I guess every good clergy joke or story begins with a priest, a rabbi, and a minister. So let me begin with a priest, a rabbi, and a minister who had gathered together in their community because they decided that they wanted to do something together to be of some use in some way, to be able to minister as much as they could beyond their differences in their community, to touch lives of people, to bring uh, something better to those lives. And so they got together and they made signs for themselves that they would carry. They made their signs and then they went out on a roadway and they stood about a tenth of a mile apart from one another and they held up their signs. They stood there on a quiet roadway and then all of a sudden a a vehicle came kind of charging down the road and the vehicle came uh, first to the rabbi uh, who held up a sign and said, turn around, you're going the wrong way. And the guy looked at him and he just kind of sneered and, and he kept going. And he came to the priest who held up his sign that said, the end is near. And he looked at him and he just yelled out at him and he called him a religious nut. And as he kept going, he came up to the pastor who held up a sign, the Protestant minister that said, take heed lest you die. Well, the guy just shrugged him off, kept going. Then it was silent for a bit. And then all of a sudden, you could hear mangled steel. Well, the rabbi and the priest and the minister gathered together and, and looked and said, there's something wrong with what we're doing here. And so they developed a new plan and decided that all three of them would just hold a sign that said, the bridge is out. It's hard to be a prophet. Um, it's hard to make sure that you have the right words to convey the right meaning to bring about the right response. It's interesting, when you study the Bible, what you find is that there are three offices in the Old Testament um, that we can track right through the the beginning to the end and that even carry over um, in the New Testament. Uh, The first office is that of a prophet. A prophet is a person who is the conscience of that nation, of that people, that tribe, uh, the conscience really of the world, the person who's willing to speak out against what's wrong. The, the second office is that of a priest. Priests in the Old Testament were those people who were charged with standing in the gap between God and man. Their job was to offer sacrifices uh, for the people, for the nation, um, to, to offer uh, sacrifices to show the, the repentance of the people, that God might forgive them for their sins and that God would still be with them and a call for the people to be with God. Uh, the third office that you find in the Old Testament is the office of a king. Kings were 
anointed and appointed by God in order to rule over and to lead a people, and they were charged to do so in a way that was honoring to God. It's interesting, when you get to the New Testament, you don't see these popping up in the same way you do in the Old Testament, because in the New Testament, Jesus takes the role of all three. Jesus takes the role of the prophet who is the conscience of the people, who speaks out against sin. He takes the role uh, of the great high priest who doesn't just sacrifice um, a sheep, but who becomes uh, the sheep that is sacrificed. He takes on the role of the king, the one who is building a kingdom that will never end, and the one who calls us into that kingdom. This morning I wanna look at a little bit of what it means to be a prophet, particularly as, as we're gonna look at the next prophet in our series, Majoring on the Minors, the minor prophet called Zephaniah. Um, prophets are people who are what we call foretellers and foretellers. In other words, they're people who speak forth what's going on in the moment, what God thinks about it, how God feels about it. But they're also foretellers. They speak about what is coming in the future, what God has in mind for his people. They're people who, who speak about the present and the not yet. Um, when you read the prophets, and as we've read them, as hopefully as you've, as you've gone home and done some of your own study on the minor prophets, sometimes you can get lost in them because you think you know what they're talking about and then they seem to take a left-hand turn. Let me help you a little bit. Maybe this, this sketch um, will help you. Don't laugh at my artwork. But when a prophet looks out, it's like looking out over a mountain range. He can see the present, and he can see the near future, and he can see the future. And so oftentimes when prophets are speaking, when they're prophesying, they can be talking about the future or the present, and all of a sudden they're talking about something that hasn't happened yet. And then they're talking about the end of the world. And so it can be very difficult sometimes when you're reading the prophets because they can go from one line of, of, of speech from the present right into the future, the end. And then they can jump back into the near future and then go back to the present. And so when you study the prophets, you have to understand they're not doing it to mess you up. They're doing it because they're giving this viewpoint in which they can see the end and they can see the near future and they can see the present. And they're so close together that when they're prophesying and they're trying to describe and give us an account of what God is talking about in the future, that it looks to us like it's all jumbled up, but to them, they're trying to explain what they see way out there, the, the highest peak of the future, and yet in the middle, give account for the near future 
and give account for the present. And so when you study prophecy, you always got to be looking at the shifts that take place. Um, and prophets are people that they kind of deal with the same puzzle, the same pieces of the puzzle. Um, because prophets usually are dealing with these pieces, God, the people, obedience, sin, holiness, consequence, hope, remnant, warning, savior, judgment, the end. And so when you're reading the prophets, boy, they got a lot going on. And so if you can remember that, you can kind of pace yourself and follow and you can come out of the prophets with an understanding of what they meant and how it applies to us today. And so this morning, I want you to keep all that in mind if you can. As we look at the prophet Zephaniah. Now, Zephaniah really does an incredible job of doing all of that. Because Zephaniah speaks about the present. He speaks about the day of the Lord, the day of judgment. He speaks about the great day of judgment. In fact, in the whole Old Testament, nobody speaks more of the day of the Lord than Zephaniah does. Even though we see it in the New Testament, nobody matches it in comparison to him. Who was Zephaniah? Um, let's go right to the first verse. It said, the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, son of Cushai, the son of uh, Jed Jedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, during the reign of Josiah, son of Amon, king of Judah. Now, that's a nice introduction. Wouldn't you like to meet somebody who just said, hi, I'm blah, 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 blah. I once knew a, um, a pastor friend of mine who went to Washington, D.C. Um, to meet a pastor in a, in a very large, prevalent church. And when he went to meet him, um, he introduced himself and the pastor responded by introducing himself as the most reverend so-and-so. And my friend said to him, well, that was an interesting idea on your mother's part. Um, nobody likes big titles. But in the Old Testament, and particularly in the prophets, when you're given big titles, they mean something. What Zephaniah is doing is, when he talks about his lineage, he talks about his father and his grandfather and his great-grandfather, and he's trying to show you that he comes from a very special lineage. In fact, the lineage that Zephaniah comes from um, is a royal lineage. This was a guy who, who walked around the seats of power. Um, a guy who had a little bit of influence and his family had a little bit of influence. In fact, his family had a great deal of influence, influence because when you get to Hezekiah, you're talking about one of the great kings of Judah. Judah's in the southern part of Israel. Remember we told you that Israel got split between north and south? He's in the southern part of Judah and he's trying to remind the people where he comes from, that he's been there uh, when there have been good kings and he's been there when there have been horrific kings. And in his lineage, in Hezekiah, he comes from a time, a, a lineage of a, a good king, 
of a king who for the most part did what was pleasing and favorable to God. But he also talks about the fact that he now lives during the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, a time where things have gone off the rail. Uh, Judah was the last nation um, of the nation split in half that compromised, that went pagan. Israel went very quickly, Samaria went very quickly, but Judah seemed to hold their own, even though at times there were some big ebbs and flows. And so he's saying, this is the time that I come from. In fact, uh, the name of Judah, um, excuse me, the name of Zephaniah uh, literally means um, the Lord hides. In fact, we've said this before, when you study the prophets, one of the cool things you find is all of the names have these great meanings to them. And his name means the Lord hides. Lord hides what? The Lord hides his presence. The Lord hides his word and his blessing. Because in the time in which um, Zephaniah is speaking, that's what God is doing. God has had it with these people. God has had it with all of uh, their sinfulness, with all of the, the sickness and insanity of worshiping other gods and offering children for sacrifices and engaging in things that would make the pagans even blush. In fact, look at what we read in verse two. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both man and beast. I will sweep away the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea. Now, when you look at that, what does that remind you of? What can you see in that? You see creation, right? In the beginning of how God created, how he created man, and how he created uh, the birds of the air and the fish in the sea, and God is saying, I will sweep it all away from the face of the earth. What's happening in the, be in the beginning of uh, Zephaniah the first thing he breaks out with on that mountain range is the far mountain range when one day God will bring an end and God will bring judgment and punishment on those who turn their backs on him. So he begins to start with that end picture in mind. In fact, we know that because in verse 18 he says this, neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. And so he's saying that it won't matter if they even try to do something good. When that day comes, it will be over. When the prophets spoke, they spoke about judgment. And they were very clear that sin has consequences just as obedience has rewards. In fact, let's go on just a little bit. What was it that was going on that, that had inflamed God so much with his own people? Those who bow down and swear by the Lord and who also swear by Moloch. What's he accusing them of? Compromise. There are people that are, they're, they're trying to walk 
both sides of the aisle. They're trying to hold on to God and claim some form of godliness. And on the other hand, they're living just as pagan as the pagans can live. God hates compromise. God hates it. When we try to live with one world, foot in one world and one foot in another world, and you see it all around you. We see it in the church. People who want to talk about being faithful and loving to God and then yet cheat on their spouses. People who talk about loving to, to worship God but can't get through the day without being high or drunk. People who try to hold to the form of godliness and yet they're compromising every day for what feels good and what is judicious, what is in their best interest as far as the world is concerned. Those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. And that's those who just concede. They just walk away. They're not even willing to compromise anymore. They just say, I don't care. They go their own way. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I remember those days when I used to go to Sunday school and I used to go to church and, and that was cute. But, but I, I don't have time for that anymore. And you know, I'm not really sure about that stuff anyways. And I'm doing good on my own. Those who are complacent, those who, who think that you can pretty much do what you want and God won't bother you, that God isn't gonna bring any consequences to right or wrong, compromise those who turn their backs on God, and conceders, those who just kind of say, yeah, whatever, I'm just, I'm gonna do what feels good and the God stuff I ain't worrying about right now. That's what God ultimately was judging in the book of Zephaniah. And, and, and make it clear, when you go through the book of Zephaniah, he's judging everybody. He doesn't just deal with um, Judah, the, the nation. He deals with all of her enemies. He deals with every nation in the world. <coughs> and frankly, says some pretty scary things about what he's going to do to them because of what they've done. Why is that? I mean, why does God have to be such a spoiled sport? Can't you have a little bit of fun? Can't you go off the reservation for a little while? I mean, why do you have to live such a boring life? I mean, it should be okay to go out and get high every once in a while or get drunk every once in a while. It, should, it, it could be, it should be okay to just maybe step out on your spouse every once in a while. In fact, there are those who say it, it makes healthier marriages. <laughs> my wife would kill me in my sleep. But shouldn't it be okay? I mean, life is hard. Why make it any more boring and hard than it needs to be? Except the problem is One, we're we're walking away from God. 
See, God is a holy God. And here's the deal. For him to be holy, remain holy. The people who he calls his own, the people who want to be blessed by him, the people who want to be protected by him, can't if they're willfully willing to just walk their own way from him. See, that's the deal and that's the problem. That's what still goes on today in our lives. We become complacent. We think, well, you know, it's not a big deal and God probably doesn't even count that and, and it doesn't matter. Or, or we just compromise. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll go out and do this, but I'll pray a whole bunch of t- times this week and, and that'll kind of wipe it out. And, and God will understand that <coughs> I can worship two gods. <coughs> God will understand that sometimes it's just so hard you just you say, forget it, I'm just gonna go my own way. He knows who I am problem is God doesn't tolerate it one because he's holy and two because he loves us you don't let people you love drink poison you don't watch people you love hurt themselves and say nothing what kind of love is that and there are times you have to discipline harshly based upon the depravity of people's sins. God never just pours out wrath upon us because we forgot our homework or we forgot to say our prayers. God doesn't do that. God is a patient God. I love what Paul says, that he shows unlimited patience to people like us so that others would see he really is a good God. And yet he won't be mocked. Turn to the next slide. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps. In fact, when you, when you think of um, Zephaniah, I, I want you to think of an, a, a guy with a lamp. And he's just, he's walking around. And he's trying to do what Socrates did. Remember Socrates? Socrates walked around with a lamp. Why did he do that? To find an honest man. Well, in one sense, Zephaniah is doing that, but he's walking around with the lamp in punishment for those who compromise, for those who concede. For those that, I love this, who are like wine left on its dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. Now, what does that mean, wine left on its dregs? They used to take wine that, when it started to become slimy, they would just pour it into one pouch and then pour it into another and then try to get rid of the slime. Well, that's what Zephaniah is talking about. God won't let you just become slimy. Have you ever met slimy people? 
Do you know sometimes we can look that way? Because we can go too far off the reservation. Here's a big idea in this. Can you turn the next slide, please? What will happen as a result of what is happening? That's really the whole gist of Zephaniah. Now, you could say that's the whole gist of the prophets. But Zephaniah really is telling us in the midst of all of this, what will happen as a result of what is happening? Because sin needs a response. Otherwise, God isn't loving and holy. Think, think about it. How hard I labor determines how much I make. How much I save determines how much I have, right? Um, how I treat people determines how I'll be treated, for the most part. Um, how much I know will determine how far I go. I mean, why do we tell kids, you gotta go to college, you gotta go to college? Because we know, yeah, you'll limit yourself in the marketplace. How much I eat will determine how much I look like I eat. It's how much I exercise will determine how healthy I am. It's, it's, it's Paul's saying, you reap what you sow. What you do now will determine what happens tomorrow and the next day and the next day. I watch people sometimes do horrific, horrific things. And I watch them sometimes do horrific things to their children. And having gone down that road with so many families, my heart breaks. Even while I was a young child, I know where this is going. I know that what happened then will affect what happens to that child later. All things being equal. What you do today determines who you'll be, what you'll have and what you do next week, next year. And we forget that. We like to think there's no good and bad. Uh, you know, it, it, the laws of gravity have been suspended and what I do now won't determine anything later. It will. It's just the way God has designed the universe. In the book of Hebrews, we're told not to turn away when we hear God's voice. Why? Because if we keep doing it sooner or later, we're not going to hear anymore. It's not that he won't call, we just won't hear. It'll just sound like noise in the background. 
And that's what happens. It's interesting. I'm reading a book um, on social psychology. It's, it's, it's called Persuasion. And, and uh, they look at all these ways of persuading people and, and, um, and just what happens in the mind during different things and how just like when we, you're driving down the road, right? And you're looking for your exit. But for a second, you switch your focus to your music and you want to change the channel. Because you think, I can multitask. I can watch the road and consciously pick out the exit while I'm going through my music trying to pick out my favorites. No, you can't. You will miss your exit. And if you just focus on the exit, you really won't hear the music that's playing. What we focus on, where our attention is, there our direction is. It's an important thing to remember. How much I know God determines how much I'll know God. How much I love God will determine how much of his love I feel and carry inside of me. How much I care for and love others will determine how loving and caring I'll be. I sometimes have to work with people as a therapist who, frankly, they have no understanding of empathy. None. So when you say to them, you know, you really should do this. This is good. (laughs) They look at me like, why? Well, because when you love and care for people, it makes you a more loving and caring person. So, (laughs) oh yeah, I'm telling you. Because way back somewhere in their hurt or pain or whatever, slowly they began to kill empathy to the point now, it doesn't even make sense. And I basically have to say to them, look, just bake it till we make it, okay? I know it doesn't mean anything to you, but trust me, it's going to mean everything for you. What will happen as a result of what's happening? Look, and my son Danny said, are you going to talk about the elections? And I said, no. I will. You know, I don't, this is, we're in a crazy time. We got a guy who is sexually predatorial. We're going to have a first lady, maybe, who's posed naked and love scenes with other women. How did we get there? Oh, yeah, no, all this is true. Or we can have another politician who maybe isn't as sexually deviant but is just as crooked and just as manipulative and only cares about her own self-ambition and it all comes together on Tuesday. 
think, how did we get here? Well, we got here from last year, from five years ago, from 10 years. We got here the minute the culture began to not care about God. The minute, quote, the Christian culture of the 40s and 50s began to turn on God and say, we don't care about God. In fact, God is a joke. And if you believe in him, you're a sap. And now, look where we're at. Such a depraved place that we lift these people up and say, I want to be led by them. And my heart sinks. And yet, here's what I know. They're no worse than I am. They're no more sinful than I am. They're not more powerful than God is. That God can reach inside of them and turn on a light, open their eyes, change their directions, because that's what our God does. Go to the next verse. The Lord your God who is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. The mighty warrior who saves. The one who wars and battles for us, not against us. He's capable of changing anyone or any circumstance. And so, whoever gets elected, we pray for them. We don't look at just all their flaws. We pray that God would bless them and lead them and bring them into fellowship with him. That's what you do. You don't run out and buy a bunker and guns and food and say, well, that's what Jesus would do. No, he wouldn't. Jesus never lived in fear. If I live in fear, it will determine how neurotic I become next week and the week after and the week after. And so I look to God because he's a mighty warrior who can save. He can take what I did if I'm willing to give it to him and turn around what will happen. When you read Zephaniah, God is cussing out the people of Israel. He's cussing out the world and he is gonna bring judgment and yet he talks about blessing a holy remnant. A people who are willing to humble themselves and be obedient and follow. Who are willing to say, what I do today, if I change course, 
can change course of what happens to me tomorrow. What I do today for my family can change course of what will happen to them next year. What I do for my nation will change course of what will happen to my nation in the years to come. You've got to understand there is no such thing as dead time. That God is not complacent. That he doesn't compromise. That he doesn't just concede. But he is constantly working to bring salvation, to restore sanity and hope to his people. And if you seek it, you'll find it. If you read Zephaniah, Zephaniah says, <clears throat> there are four things people, God's people should do. One, be silent. Now, what does he mean by that? Chapter one, verse seven. He doesn't mean just don't talk. He's saying, don't make excuses for your sin. Don't come to me negotiating and minimizing. Shut up. Don't argue. Don't negotiate. Don't minimize. You come before him humble and you come before him repentant. Two, seek. Seek his righteousness. Seek his goodness. Seek his love and his provision and you will find it. That means I humble myself I die to myself and I live for him in Christ. Because if you seek, you're going to find Jesus because Jesus is the Savior who takes the past away and nails it to a cross. He's the Savior who reminds us that one day when the end comes, there'll be no end for us. There'll just be a kingdom everlasting a new Jerusalem and a new home for God's people. Three, wait. Wait upon God. Be patient. If you look at the world and you, and you say, this is so crazy and it's so out of sync and God, what do we do? And you run around. No. You wait. Because God will have his way. We don't know where we are on that mountain range, whether we're down at the lowest peak or we're coming up to the highest high of depravity. And all we know is what we're supposed to do. I love what C.S. Lewis once said about the end times. <clears throat> it doesn't matter when or how. It only matters where were you at your post when the time came? Were you just concerned about loving God and following him and seeking him with your heart and waiting upon him to move the obstacles in your life in this world for you? And lastly, worship. 
<clears throat> when we worship, we get past the limitations. We get past the negativity. We get past the feelings of abandonment and resentment and rejection. And we partake in God's love. Some of you right now might be in situations where <clears throat> you feel lonely. You and your spouse, things are falling apart or you don't have a spouse or things are changing in your life and, and you don't know where you're going and you feel lonely. The answer to that is get on your knees and pray Worship God and you won't feel lonely anymore, I promise. Why do we come together to worship? It's that constant reminder that God is in control and that he is good and that as we worship him, he pours his love out upon us. The God we worship is a God who is mighty, who brings salvation, a God who saves. And a God who calls us to remember what happens now will determine what happens later. So it's up to you to sow with what he's giving you so you can reap what he has for you. Let's join our hearts in prayer.